The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio, 1123. Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Uh, here again in more post-draft analysis, and we're going to talk about something interesting today, which is levels of risk tolerance that may differ between Ozzie Newsom and Eric DaCosta. Here to join me uh, for that is Jim Zipcode. And Jim, this is your topic, so I don't want to kind of hog the spotlight on your, on your, uh, on your topic. Explain it to us. Uh, well, hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. It's great to be uh, with you again. Uh, I have been noticing the last couple drafts uh, potential sources of different. So let me let me back up. We've been used to thinking of Eric DaCosta as Ozzie Newsom's right hand man for over 20 years, kind of sitting next to him. And when he took over as GM for, for the Ravens after Ozzie stepped down, um, I think most of us fans anticipated kind of a continuation of Ozzie's philosophy, like a draft uh, drafting for value, um, uh, hoarding of picks mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I think that we've seen a lot of that, uh, especially with DaCosta's willingness to trade up and down the board, you know, move back if necessary, you know, swap picks. But one thing that has surprised me is that um, over the years of Ozzy, I, I think that in the first round, Ozzy was not particularly a gambler in the first round. His picks tended to be conservative, guys who were very high floor guys, that the risk that they wouldn't be able to play in the NFL was very low. But... Uh, when DaCosta started drafting, it seems to me that his appetite for risk, uh, so swinging for the fences, uh, even at the risk of maybe getting a guy who might bust uh, but had high upside, uh, DaCosta has seemed to me to be just um, avid, an avid risk taker, like a, like a hungry gambler looking uh, to roll sevens at the craps table. And so the guys I want to mention are uh, Marquise Brown, who um, – was rehabbing a list Frank injury at the time he was picked and also uh, has very serious size concerns. Yep. Um, Patrick Queen was uh, 
he had less than a full season of uh, experience as a starter uh, in his co for college. So there was a, a big risk that maybe he didn't know how to play, didn't know how to cover, didn't know how to read his responsibilities, and maybe some risk that he couldn't stand up to the every damn punishment at a position like inside linebacker. A little undersized. And, and you know, if you really want to want to talk about this, it's a position where a premium is paid at inside linebacker in the first round. It's often because it's often the defensive signal caller, the leader. And unfortunately, it was absolutely bought at the top of the market in terms of premiums for inside linebackers. Yeah. And so for uh, an organization that has principally been a Warren Buffett style value investment shop, you know, paying top of the market price is uh, is a little bit of a departure. Then we've got Odafe Owe, uh, an edge rusher who had zero sacks in his final final season mm -hmm. of college. I love the traits, but we can't argue that that's uh, no risk. And then this year we have uh, uh, Tyler Lindebaum, who is a tremendous college player, but he's uh, an undersized offensive lineman with um, some physical traits that are in the first percentile for his position. Yeah. Uh, at um, weight and uh, arm length and wingspan, yeah, a lot, wingspan. A lot, of, a lot of things related to that. So, uh, yeah, it's certainly he's scary in terms of of of, of traits to the table here. And and what's really scary is he's very very similar to Garrett Bradbury, who just did not have his fifth year option picked up by the Vikings after you know really struggling through three years in the yeah. NFL. He's, he's also, uh, I don't want to rag on the Linderbaum pick too much uh, because there's also similarities between uh, Linderbaum and Jason Kelsey, who's been phenomenally successful in the league, and Corey Lindley, who's been very, very successful. Uh, they're very similar sizes. Have you ever noticed how whenever somebody has an undersized, under-metriced player, they always want to compare him to the best player who had similarly crappy metrics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and then you don't want to mention the and, 50 other guys who didn't. Yeah, I mean, you don't know them. Either. You don't know who they are. So, yeah. so you know, you, you have to take a, a some sort of sample that's representative. And if you look at the first-round centers, there really has been a Mendoza line in terms of what length is required. And, and Bradbury, Billy Price, another complete first-round bust with the Bengals, they moved him around a little bit in terms of position. But he should have been able to take the center job for Cincinnati. He never could. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's the, he the three of them are, are, are of similar length. Then you get guys who are above 32 inches in length and uh, price is at arm 30 length arm length. Yeah. Price was price was uh, 32. Exactly. And Brad, Bradbury was 31.75. Linderbaum, 31.25. You get to the to the longer guys and you've got three pro bowlers all of a sudden in the in the first round. So it's, you know, it, it's a it's it's definitely a trait you want to be very careful of uh and and i don't want to make that all this show is about but you know in terms of the linderbaum risk that's where it is it's it's can he adjust as many many others have not yeah. in terms of 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 dealing with his lack of length right I, obviously i think in our division the other risk with linderbaum is whether he can anchor against a really big sure. defensive tackle pushing trying to push the pocket by the way that is largely length related because oh yeah, I first, can see that. First sure. contact is dictated by these bigger men. Yeah, it makes makes it much harder to anchor. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to focus on Linderbaum. I think that he's an extremely talented player. But I think if you look at the set of them, that's uh, that's four drafts with a first round pick with a with a, a question marks right and a and a, mm -hmm. a high risk that um, the pick won't be able to succeed in the NFL at all. You know, mm -hmm. so let's say low floor picks. And that's so, really different from the Aussie philosophy, it seems to me. Right. So probably high variance is the way we would term yeah. them, right? They're, 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 these picks have a, a more of a high variance. Now, I, I, in going back on Aussie, I, I'll ask this as a question, but yeah, you you kind of going to get the sense that I really already think this is the answer. At least in the picks until 2000, where they had the never fail mm -hmm. Aussie era, basically. Yeah. Travis Taylor, you know, kind of the first one. All, all of those guys were taken with such high picks. It's hard to fail. You know, Jonathan Ogden was drafted number four. Ray Lewis at 26 was a later round pick that really worked out. And Peter Boulware at number four, Dwayne Starks at number 10, Chris McAllister at number 10, Jamal Lewis at number five, and Travis Taylor at number 10 is really the first of the picks that really didn't work out for the Ravens in the first round. I forget Travis Taylor's measurable. He, he, he was he was pretty much a Big prototypical guy. wide receiver size. Is that about right? Uh, I think it's 6'1", 200. Yeah, okay. 
definitely was a was was thought to be a bigger receiver in in that era. Right. Um, people pl- players like uh, Daryl Boston and Plexico Barris came along after that, I believe, and and uh, and really changed the the size of the position. So you're saying at that point in the draft, like nobody who would be a realistic pick at that position was going to have any physical question marks about them. I think that's sort of your point. Yeah, I, I think you get mostly high ceiling and high floor uh, on the early first round picks. And, and you really, if you're going to do anything, you have to measure them against other picks at that at that level. Right. Uh, you know, the big pothole that Ozzy avoided was stepping in the uh, big pile of dog crap that uh, Lawrence <laughs> Phillips' career ended up being. <laughs> Two, so, two metaphors, but you understand. What <laughs> yeah, we spoke very, pr- uh, very, very briefly before we we fired up this recording, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's a good time to bring up the types of risk that there are. So we mentioned Tyler Linderbaum's arm, right? So that that mm-hmm. that type of risk, let's characterize that as physical or measurables, mm-hmm. right? Tr- physical traits. Then we've got uh, um, character concerns. That's our Lawrence Phillips uh, mm-hmm. segue. We've got something that I'm calling productivity or skills, and that uh, what I'm trying to capture there is the idea of a guy who maybe Jalen Ferguson is a good example here, who played for a long time in college, had a lot of productivity, and had uh, understanding slash skills for his position. Now he didn't succeed in the NFL, but um, I'm going to say that was primarily you know lack of physical or measurables. It's not that he didn't have experience, and then injury, uh, which. Um, for me, would be the Marquise Brown uh, mm-hmm. situation where where uh, the players injured when he's drafted. Those are the Brashad the, Perriman. Brashad Perriman. Those are right. The, the the knee. I forgot the PCL. Yeah. Um. So those are the four major types of risk that I just noticed uh, with with some of these these draft picks. That's those are good categories, and I, I've I, the Ravens uh, have a system that they used to use on their board. I'm not sure if they use it anymore, where they would put a black sticker. Uh, on a player. And and that could mean one of two things. It could mean injury risk, mm-hmm. meaning players coming off an injury, or it could mean um, off field or character concerns. They didn't, right. they didn't try and differentiate between, but been uh, seen the inside of the room after the draft, but, but uh, uh, you know, still with the dots on the board. And we, and we saw some of those uh, before one of the drafts. So it was interesting uh, that, uh, that that year, the, uh, the Washington Redskins of the time uh, drafted four black dot Ravens players. So. Is the black dot an undraftable player? No. In fact, the Ravens had drafted one guy who, who had that injury risk associated with him was Arthur Jones. Mm. And uh, he had had a serious, serious injury. I think it was a knee also at, while he was at Syracuse and, uh, and they drafted him anyway, but they, they waited until the fifth round to, to do it. So they're, they're, it, it's not a can't draft them. It's a, it's a, Consider this carefully when drafting, I, I think, is what they're trying to do. And, you know, who even knows if they yeah. use the stickers during the thing? But they, that's also one of the sticker types is the famous red star mm-hmm. that goes on players that uh, individual scouts want to advocate for. So they each get to pick either one or two players that they can red star on the draft. You haven't heard much about red star players mm-hmm. uh, in recent seasons. We used to there was a there was a few years there where we heard a lot about red star players. Right. I think DaCosta has often talked about uh, he likes the process of the individual scouts trying to sell each other on certain players. Yeah. And so I, th- I, th- I think, you know, it's a healthy process to have debate over as many players as you can, not just have one report or two reports or one dominant report even about a player, but you got to sell it to me. You know, it's a great thing we hear in the business world a lot. And, and uh, I think it's a, it's a good thing to use for scouting for sure. It makes me wonder about the uh, the atmosphere in those organizations, uh, sports organizations, uh, because usually those guys have not gone through, I want to say gone through the business world, like a training program, an intake program at a Fortune 500 company or something like that. Mm-hmm. The, the culture is really, I, th- I think those guys like listening to guys argue <laughs> yeah, and, and hearing guys fight for somebody as if that all by itself is of value. I mean, I think... I think passion in individuals in any corporate environment that happens. You, you, you're in an IT environment, yeah, correct? Yeah. Okay. So, so and you, consulting you, before that. Yeah. I mean, uh, consulting may be less so because you have to treat the client with kid gloves and, oh, you were so close and, oh, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. you're, you, know, you have all that. But, but in, a, in a normal kind of an actuarial environment, I mean, we're screaming at each other. It's it's a it's a, you know you 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 make a make a point about uh, what you think an assumption ought to be or why you think it ought to be a and then if you have disagreement, then 
it can get loud. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, I don't think that's abnormal at all. I think that's true probably in a lot of other places. If you, if I, if you don't have it, it's probably because you have uh, too much dominance by one person, which is also not healthy. Is that is you know one person is just kind of controlling the conversation and giving all the orders, and I don't think that's healthy. I've not had experience where that kind of argument in a business setting is is super helpful. I'm remembering one situation where I got into a yelling match with a database administrator on Code Over Go Live weekend, who mm-hmm. didn't want me to have the uh, the um, the database administrator's password before we ran the data conversion programs, and that had to be. That had to be refereed by the project manager because we were <laughs> we were just, just you could honored. not re- resolve it yourself, huh? No, we couldn't. <laughs> That's okay. You had your tie-breaking procedures. That's fine. And and I, I think the important thing a lot of the time is to vet these things and and just the, the act of actual talking about them is very healthy. And you got to understand yeah. that it's just you're, you're you're taking two sides of the argument there, but right. A lot of sports discussions are really like that. And I guess this is what we're getting back to is in the draft room, we expect that a lot of the discussion does get loud. You know, they do take it into the bathroom with each other, not not in a bad way here, but they, <laughs> but they, they, they you know, they're when they're on bathroom break, they're still arguing about the players they want to draft. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's such an imprecise science. Like you're, you're arguing about what a kid, what a what a 20 year old, a 21 year old is going to become over the next five years which is one of the most volatile possible predictions. Yep. Yeah, I sure made some is. notes about some Aussie draft picks. Uh, and, and one of them uh, is, is whether a guy was a prototype or not. And I just mean physically here. Yeah. And I noted, uh, I think it's about 12 prototypes. Uh, Jonathan Ogden, who was the, the clip art of what an offensive lineman yeah, ought to look, a tackle ought to look like. Chris McAllister. Uh, Todd Heap for a move tight end. Um, God help me, Kyle Bowler certainly looked like uh-huh. a quarterback. Uh, Terrell Suggs, Loti Nata, Ben Grubbs, Joe Flacco, Jimmy Smith, uh, Ronnie Stanley, Marlon Humphrey. These guys could, you know, if you wanted to establish what the physical ideal is of a player at a particular position, those guys right. all absolutely look the part. Yeah, Marlon Humphrey, did you name? I'm sorry, I missed it. I did. If you did, yes, okay, yes. yeah, he definitely belongs in the group. Um, Maybe Bullware too. Yeah, Bullware would be the other one that I, just looking through all the first round picks here that that really uh, says. Did you say Jamal Lewis? I did not uh, because he definitely was so big. Yeah, uh, it was very very unusual to have a, a physical specimen like him who who is a combination of speed and power that Jamal did not not the the highlight level elusiveness of a Sanders no. or, a, or a Sanders, certainly just an unbelievable small step, uh, big hit running back. Yeah. I, uh, I read one of those, um, columns that they do, uh, in around training camp, media types will run them. Like what was your welcome to the NFL moment as a rookie? Mm-hmm. And, uh, a guy, a cornerback was quoted, uh, he's a five foot 10 corner. He was quoted as saying, I came up and run support against the Ravens and Jamal Lewis came around the corner at me. And I don't know if you've seen Jamal Lewis, but that's a big dude. <laughs> yeah. He's a he's a definitely was a was a hell of a back. Uh probably is not gonna quite make the Hall of Fame, but uh boy, he had a great career with the Ravens, that's for yeah. sure. That one, that two thousand season that season of two thousand yards was just amazing. All right. So was um, that two thousand season? Frankly, came in, didn't start <laughs> right away, and True. and was fantastic, and you know, huge single component to that offense. You know, not a great offensive line that year. Uh, you know, it got it got weaker when, as you went left to right. Line, I would say, decent, but on the right side, not particularly good. With okay. Harry Swain and uh, a mix of players playing right guard, and Harry, Swain wasn't even healthy the whole year. You had guys like Spencer Falau getting getting significant time in there. Jeff Mitchell was okay. Mulatalo and and Ogden were the strength of the line on the left side from a run blocking perspective, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I, I would I would honestly say pretty pretty average offensive line, and I honestly not a particularly good offensive line for for a Super Bowl winning team. No, well, I mean, <laughs> it's a very high standard. I was sure. surprised though. I was looking at uh, Ravens ranks in uh, DVOA Football Outsiders last off season, uh, trying to get a rank of every Ravens team, you know, which, which team did DVOA think was the best Ravens squad, which did they think was the worst. And I was surprised how well regarded that the offense for 2000 was by DVOA. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I thought it was terrible and it was not terrible by their rankings. Not great, but. 
Right. So that's uh, that's it. Was it a positive DVOA on offense? I think it was. Okay. Yeah, I'd have that's... to I'd have to pull up that spreadsheet, and I'm afraid I'd lose the spreadsheet I have right now. While we... No, that's uh, that's fine. I'm just I, I just kind of wanted to know. I know they had they had a tremendously negative DVOA on defense, which is is the good side. That's right, what yeah. you want. Yeah. Low numbers. Yeah. Low scoring yeah. is there. So, okay. So, so do you agree? Like, has DaCosta taken on more risk per pick in the first round than 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 Ozzy did over his tenure? Yeah, I, I I think I think that's probably pretty clearly true. And and uh, you know if if you have picks that you just question right off the back, you know the Linderbaum pick, uh, I think people question. I think you're right. The OA pick is one that's that, that's questioned. Uh, and it, fortunately, that one seems to have worked out. So uh, you know we don't obviously don't know about Linderbaum yet. Patrick Queen, unfortunately, after two years. He's not where the Ravens want him to be. Right. I I, I can't imagine that they want to be. I, he's not where where I want him to be. How about that? Is that yeah. enough? And then Marquise Brown ended up being a terrific pick, given the fact that they basically got back exactly what they drafted him for. They they uh, he <laughs> the post draft handling of the asset that he represented was perfect. They got back exactly what they spent on him. Right. What's the famous thing that um, Peter King said about him that? Like you buy a car for $55,000, drive it for three years, and then take it back to the dealer and get the $55,000 back for it. But that doesn't mean that the original $55,000 was well spent. That just means that you found a really generous dealer to return it to. Right. I I agree with that. And I have a problem generally when people um, uh, pair together a good result and a bad result. And particularly this, this happens all the time with draft picks. And they say, okay, we made a great pick. So effectively, you're allowed to make a crappy pick. No, you're not allowed to make a crappy pick just because you made a great pick. And the the, the classic time is the 18 first round with Hayden Hurst getting selected at 25 and then Lamar mm-hmm. Jackson at 32. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Jackson pick is a generational pick. And at yeah. 32, it was prescient in terms of being able to uh, capture an asset for an, for an extra year that we're just going to be able to afford this year. Right. Uh, you know, that, that uh, are going to be enjoy this year, I should say. And Hayden Hurst, uh, you know, they did get back something for him two years later, which is good, uh, but is not what you would hope. So, uh, right. So, uh, yeah. So the Lamar Jackson, the greatness of the Lamar Jackson draft pick does not make the Hayden Hurst pick good. Uh, yeah. Or, or the fact that they passed on, on uh, Derwin James. Right. So, uh, or uh, DJ Moore. Yeah, or DJ Moore, but Derwin James. <laughs> because, you know, a generational talent. I mean, they didn't make the same mistake this year. I'm I'm, I'm really glad to 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 see that. that Hamilton, they, you know, yeah. we're talking about risky picks. I'm not mentioning Kyle Hamilton in that group whatsoever. Right, me either. And uh, you know, I think that the uh, I suppose it could be a risky pick in terms of not being a need pick, but a value pick. Is a value pick ever risky? I think by definition, not. Uh, uh, so Jonathan Ogden was picked at a position that was not a position of need and they played him at, at a quote at a position unquote he mm-hmm. could play anywhere at left guard his first season because they didn't have an open tackle spot for him uh, I would say that Terrell Jones. Suggs perhaps was not a pick at a position of need that was the thought at the time is that is that you know hey we've got pass rushers why are we getting Suggs when we need a quarterback yeah, and, and I thought that was the plan. I thought to get Leftwich by making that trade, and then mm-hmm. cards didn't get turned in, phones didn't get answered, or whatever, and Suggs dropped down and and was taken. Did they? Uh, did did the Ravens organization not make trades with the Bears for a number of years after that? That Jimmy Smith thing. Yeah, the yeah. I I don't I don't know what uh, what internal rules they have for dealing with the Bears, but uh, oh, I'm know, they, sorry, they, did I mean the Vikings? I, I meant to be talking about the Terrell Suggs thing. Okay, so th- there was the same problem where they they lost a spot on the Jimmy Smith trade, and I think they were pretty pissed about it with the Bears. Yeah. And the Bears even said it's our fault, but the league didn't do anything to them. Yeah. So with the, with the Terrell Suggs thing, I think it was I think more than likely it was the Ravens who messed up the transaction. Maybe intentionally, maybe not, but they messed up the transaction. They either couldn't decide amongst themselves or they didn't make the phone call or certain people really wanted to do it and Ozzy didn't. <laughs> and it was reported otherwise. Maybe even, you know, I, the guy could really see throwing a fit in the Ravens draft room would have been Billick because Billick really wanted a quarterback. Yeah. And they mollified him by trading back into the first round to get bowler uh at a very severe cost in terms of the 2004 number one pick vince wolfork 
Vince Wilfork was the guy the Patriots selected with that pick. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, I, I, I think if you ask people from that era, people will have selective memories about what exactly occurred there. Mm-hmm. Um, try asking the question of Brian Billick someday. I've gotten an interesting story on that at a at a uh, uh, you know general event that was uh, he was speaking at. And then I, I wonder if you asked Acosta or if you asked Newsom if they might also tart up what actually happened during that first round. All this all the drama at seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, it led up to a Suggs draft pick, and you know the, the trade not being made. And then why did they go back and go ahead and get Bowler at the end of that round? Uh, it was a two years later they drafted Mark Clayton. There's a risky pick. <laughs> well, so I didn't mention opportunity cost as a risk, but Aaron Rodgers went two picks later. Yeah, he'd been in the green room forever. I mean, people thought he would; those guys would go one, two. The trades would be worked out, but the, and then a whole other, a whole bunch of other people. It's almost like the uh, the movie was. Is it draft day or whatever the movie was with the, with Kevin Costner and the Browns draft? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it was almost like that. Rogers all of a sudden had a scarlet letter on him and couldn't be drafted and had to be dragged off into the commissioner's uh, suite so they wouldn't have to be sitting in the green room for and hours. Hours on there, just scowling harder yeah, and harder just, as every pick goes by. Yeah, it's just, just a, it's a, it was a hard day, obviously for him. But uh, you know, I like the way they do it now that they bring in some guys expected to be drafted on day two and even you know into the third round. I don't know if they've got anybody they really expect to be drafted in the fourth round, just so they can tear it and and mm-hmm. say, you know, hey, we know you're not going to be drafted on day one, but enjoy the party with us and come in and you know have fun and uh and you know be a body basically so these other guys don't have to be in here alone yeah so so that one guy doesn't stand out for not getting drafted (laughs) yeah yeah that's it mark 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 clayton a a 510 190 pound receiver not a prototypical physical tools guy no but uh but well within wide receiver norms i wouldn't say especially risky physically and very productive very skilled as a college player I I think I would argue that he was a pretty big risk size wise at the time, mm-hmm. but it's you know I respect your opinion on this. If 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 you'd say you know if if the Ravens had drafted him as a slot receiver, mm-hmm. I'd say well okay that's a reasonable slot receiver. If he can run a whip route that lo- will lose anybody, that's great. Mm-hmm. But he's he's really small to be an X receiver or or yeah. you know on the outside anywhere honestly, and that limited what you can do with the guy. And, uh, yeah, just, I, I, I think it probably was a risky pick. It, it obviously didn't really work out. Mark Clayton, by the way, it's not, you know, obviously he did have Kyle Bowler throwing to him for a lot of his career, his career catch rate, 53%, 52.6% with the Ravens. I mean, that's just completely unacceptable. His yards per target while he was with the Ravens, only 7.0. So, uh, you know, that's not what you want out of a receiver, certainly not what, not what you want out of a number one receiver. I hate to I hate to, to lay that on him for the reason that you just mentioned, because yep. that's suspiciously similar to Kyle Bowler's completion. Percentage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, Clayton should be the guy who's, who's, who's picking you up on that. But I think there were a few too many contested catches in there, and that would not have been an area where Clayton would have been would have been particularly good. I remember watching. Joe Flacco play his first game as a rookie against the Bengals. Yep. And I had Kyle Bowler in the back of my mind, and I'm looking at this guy, like, is he going to be able to play? And there was one play in that game. And, you know, I think as a fan, you have little litmus test moments, right, where a guy does one thing and he does it well, and you're like, oh, he's going to be great. And uh, pocket broke down around Flacco, and there were no open receivers downfield. And he took a look to his right, and uh, Todd Heap was open. And Todd Heap is making that motion with your hand, like that your, your two hands, like, give me the ball. Yeah. But he was also very close to Flacco. He was so close that, I mean, like within, let's say, 10 yards, um, that like the completion was not a problem, but any pass rushers coming at Flacco would be very easily able to redirect to take down Heap. So Flacco turned away from Heap and rolled away from him. I want to say this is to his left. And Bowler, I'm sorry, Heap, if it was a comic book, you could see a gigantic question mark over his head in the, in the <laughs> off balloon. Like his body language was like, what is happening? And Flacco rolled away from Heap to increase the space, the distancing, 
and then he turned back and tossed it to Heap. It was a very much a basketball play, you know, draw the defenders right. away. And I leaned back. Pen- and just Penetrate and kick out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I leaned back and just raised my hand. I'm like, this guy will be great. Because <laughs> yeah. he completed the pass to Heap. Having drawn away the defenders, Heap went on to make a, a nice gain on the play. It's, it's weird the things that you look at uh, that tell you, you know, this guy's processing physical space at a high rate. You know, he's reading the field. He has good instincts. I don't think, speaking of Flacco, I would not call him a particularly risky pick in the middle of the first round. Certainly his measurables were great. Uh, he looked like a pocket passer, you know, big, strong, big-armed guy, able to shrug off tacklers. Uh, he wasn't super fast. You know, he wasn't Steve Young. He didn't have, you know, the processing speed of a Brady. I'm not saying it was risk-less, but... Um, you, one could make the argument that he was a significantly less risky, risky pick than, say, Lamar Jackson was. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's probably realistic. I mean, Joe certainly had more of the normal Classic. traits looked for in the quarterbacks of the day in terms yeah. of size and arm strength and and whatnot. Uh, and then you know, you move on to Lamar Jackson, and and the Ravens really. Uh, changed the way people looked at quarterbacks in a lot of ways. It's not like there weren't a couple of them already. Deshaun Watson, I guess, had already been in the league for a year. Yeah. I have to look it back. back two. Exactly. I think it was two years. Okay. And then, and then uh, you know, Russell Wilson, of course, had been around. But Lamar Jackson really was the first one they really built the offense around, that they built it specifically for him in terms of a, uh, a multi-threat guy. Uh, Michael Vick, to, to, to probably a lesser degree, uh, had that Vic really throughout of his career kind of still tried to be a pocket passer for a lot of it. Never had the number of runs that Lamar did. Yeah. I think that we, uh, maybe a different show here would be whether that was well advised. Cause I think that Lamar could function very capably in a classic West coast offense system or, or an Earhart, uh, Earhart Perkins uh, offense and just have the runs be sort of a, uh, a sidelight, you know, like escape the pocket, you know, break the pocket with the pass rush, but I, I don't want to, dive into that particular rabbit hole. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good thing to save for another day. The, yeah. the Ben Grubbs pick, pick, and this is something that uh, you look at is one of the things is positional risk mm-hmm. is are positional you value. taking? Yeah. Are you taking a position that has the kind of premium on it in the first round? Because there's, cer- there's certain positions and honestly, guard and center are both in the group where it's it, it can be very difficult to justify a first round pick on either of those positions. Now, there, there are players. Quentin Nelson certainly meets the standard to be drafted somewhere in the first round. And, and uh, you know, there are plenty of other guys who, who, who do as well. But it's certainly a position where, the, despite the fact that there's two starters at that position, it should make up far less than 111th and does make up far less than 111th of all first round picks. I, I, the, the, the seminal moment for me that really kind of bothered me was the first round of 2007 when at number 20 nine the Ravens going about to be on the clock and all of a sudden I see number 28 is on the clock currently and the pick switches to, to San Francisco is traded for the pick and I go oh, the tackle then Joe Staley of course they took any and he spent a decade as there or more as their uh left tackle and and it would the timing would have been perfect because it was the end of Ogden's career right then at 2007 was his last year and it would have been perfect. It just would have been perfect to bring him in at that point. They would have avoided the whole Gaither mess. Potentially the whole Orr mess would have been avoided as well. But they got Ben Grubbs, who was a good player for five years. But he frankly was not as good a guard as Marshall Yanda, very, very clearly. I know, by the way, Mike Preston, I think still to this day, thinks that Ben Grubbs was better than Marshall Yanda. I, he, he talks about it every so often. It, it seems to come up, but it, you know, I, there there are traits, but I, I don't know how anybody gets there. I, I really, I, I at this point, I do not get it. I mean, certainly over his career, he wasn't. I, I don't know if it's at all possible that in the first two or three seasons, you know, maybe as a rookie, Ben Grubb was a better guard than than, than Marshall Yonda was. But I, it's obviously not sustainable for a career argument. Right. I'm trying to be polite to Preston to see if there's any way we could say, you know, maybe there was a season there early on. Right. And I I think it's, it was after Grubbs was already with the Saints. He's still saying it. But, you know, it's the kind of thing I, I, I don't I'm not trying to press this, nor am I trying to beat on Mike Preston because he's a he's a, a venerable and very good writer that, that uh, you know, is, is, is tries to do a good job with 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 what he's doing. It's just it's interesting that that you can still have different opinions after all these years about these guys. I, I just think the part of the problem is they got 
all of the value they could reasonably hope to out of Ben Grubbs. They got his rookie contract. They got a, I believe, a compensatory pick. Yeah. That came the, the, at the end of that. So, you know, they got 100% of the value you can get out of the pick. And it's still, it's it's kind of bothersome. It's, it, it's, it's, it wasn't, it was good. They got... They got as much value as they reasonably could have hoped to get. But they didn't get Staley. But but they, they didn't get Staley. I was they, mad, too. When the Niners traded in that pick, I started yelling at the TV because yeah. yeah. he was the guy I was looking at as that pick came down. Yeah, same thing at our house. And this is this is how it can get kind of loud. We had a little party uh, over at our house, and and everybody kind of left as soon as I started screaming at the TV. About this. <laughs> it's one of those things that uh, we've got. Sorry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. I was commenting on Twitter about positional value because uh, I, I believe, I mean, I'm, I'm not dumb. I see the importance of positional value, obviously, quarterback, mm-hmm. you know, pass rusher, corner, offensive tackle. Those are premium positions for good reason. Mm-hmm. But I do not want to indulge the concept of positional value so much that I would pass up on Kyle Hamilton with him dropping in the first round. And, you know, that's a good point because Pete Prisco, real detractor from the Hamilton pick. And, and he thought, you know, when's the last time that a safety in the first round ever mattered? He goes, I think you have to go back to Ed Reed. Well, I mean, Troy Palomalo, I believe, was mm-hmm. drafted in the first round. And you know, there have been others since. Personally, Derwin James. Yeah, James, for example. Personally, I think if you're getting the top free safety – in any draft, I think you generally have to get him in the first round. That's actually – it's a premium position. It's yeah. a, a strong safety. I agree. I basically yeah. say, you know, I don't want to do this. But Hamilton definitely he's, – he's more than just a free safety, which he, I think he could play all by himself. He's a chess piece. You move all over the board, and you, you build your defense around this player. It's not – you know, he's, he's like Jamal Adams, and he's like Derwin uh, um, uh, James in, in that regard. Uh, even Reed, who was both a strong safety and a free safety, won the defensive player of the year as a strong safety, uh, was was uh, uh, more than that, but not the kind of moving chess piece that that Hamilton was. Right. So I I would say that for a special player, you have to ignore like a special player transcends positional value. Mm-hmm. But I, I, maybe the other point is perhaps that free safety has not been adequately recognized in its positional importance. That's that's possible. I think, you know, I think since I think you have to get it in the first round in a lot of drafts, I think that maybe we're getting there. But you, you certainly there's a the, the limited size and shape positions like offensive tackle, like quarterback, um, you know, wide receiver, obviously the top guys, there's there, there's a long tail uh, on the on the right hand side of the curve that that people want to draft in the first round um, that offensive tackle. There's a there's a you know, there's a big difference because you got to have you got to really check all the boxes for people who want to put all their eggs in the basket. And there's a really limited number of people. We look at this draft. There was there's three guys who stood head and shoulders above everybody else at tackle at tackle. Yeah. Then there was then there was Penning, mm-hmm. who was the fourth guy who had a whole bunch of question marks about character, work ethic, all these things from being a, you know, having some boneheaded stuff he did on the field. And then there's everybody else. And, and you know, it, Beatty. I'm sorry, not, not Beatty. Uh, who's the guy? Tyler Smith. Got drafted in the first round after, you know, being a guy I had, you know, honestly, on my honorable mention list, which is probably wrong. He probably should have been ahead of some other guys like uh, Ryman I had in the list where I clearly hate the arm length of, of Ryman. I, I think he was appropriately, you know, weighted until 77 by the Colts. Um, and and uh, Deach was another guy I had in my top 10. He didn't belong there at all. So Tyler Smith should have been higher on my list. But to have him you know, gravitate all the way into the first round just shows you how desperate people are to get, a ta- you know, offensive tackles with the proper measurables. Planet theory. Planet theory. There's only a, it's built, credited to Bill Parcells that there's only a certain number of people on the planet oh, okay. who have the physical attributes to be able to, you know, play like Jonathan Ogden, mm-hmm. play like Aaron Donald, play like, uh, um, uh, I, I'm losing it, but that there's a limited number of those humans and you need to grab them when they become available. We had certainly a, a fair number of those on the edge in this draft, and the Ravens have had them in past draft. But but uh, let's get back to the topic if we can a little bit about about differentiating the risk between EDC and uh, and Ozzy because I think we want to kind of tie that together uh, on this show. Yeah. So uh, you know, I don't know how to. Uh, it's to me, it was a passing observation that has grown with, with each draft. Like I, I noticed it after Marquise, honestly, for, for DaCosta's first draft and with each subsequent draft, 
<laughs> there just seems to be more risk undertaken. Uh, and I think that we can see a motive in it too. So, so Ozzy drafted for high floor. It, uh, usually he often tended mm-hmm. to draft for high floor. He perhaps a better way to put that is that he would not tolerate a low floor for a high draft pick. Sure. Um, DaCosta, I heard an interview with DaCosta. This is uh, when Ozzy was still the GM. This is before DaCosta took over. It's either a year or two before the transition. And he was interviewed. And, and one of the things he said uh, that struck, struck with me was that he thinks, he thought in the modern era that an offense needed, and I don't believe this is the word he used, that an offense needed a freak, at least one freak, that uh, the defense... Uh, just a physical type that the defense would have great difficulty matching up with. And so I'm thinking, you know, Jamar Chase, uh, uh, Lamar Jackson. Skill like, position player, though, not a lineman. Correct. Uh, Gronkowski, you know, the guys who are innately matchup problems uh, that, that every offense needed, as many of those guys as you can get, but certainly at least one of them, um, which is an interesting observation. Uh, and, and that makes me think that physical characteristics, traits like speed, are more important, perhaps, to DaCosta than they were to Ozzy because those traits create upside. And it seems that DaCosta is really in pursuit of high ceiling guys uh, and is willing to accept a lower floor in pursuit of that than Ozzy was ever willing to accept from his first round picks. Well, that's that's the nature of taking big swings as you take chances. I mean, I think you don't you can even look past the first round in this draft and say that David Ajabo. Yep. Big, big swing. And and by the way, people are gonna gonna consider me polar on Ajabo. I consider myself fairly neutral because the the, the Ravens certainly could not have gotten a, a player like Ajabo, even with their number one pick, yep. if 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 uh he hadn't have been injured. So I, I I get that completely. My problem is is that I'm I think very practically about how much of the value is jammed into those first four years or five right. in the first round, and you never can get that back. Your draft right. capital is paying for exactly that underpayment relative to cap that that player could deliver for you in those first four years. And when you when you give up one of those years, that's bad. When right. you give up development on a player who's is quite unpolished as a, as a Jabo is then it's uh it's that much worse and and you know we've already seen it happen with Patrick Queen excuses have been made we're not looking for excuses to to be made for 2023 Ajabo we need 2023 Ajabo to come right out and start playing start rushing the passer at a high level uh at, at situationally at the minimum yeah yeah so i i think with the with Ajabo what you have to say is that the I'm sorry, if you're going to defend a cost on this pick, mm-hmm. you have to observe that the Ravens very rarely get the opportunity to draft a player with those traits. Right. That's true. That's absolutely true. And and, and his ceiling is enormous. And if the, if the Ravens can somehow harvest two and a half years of outstanding play, that'll be fantastic. If they, if they harvest one and a half years of top play, like they did from Paul Kruger, mm-hmm. it would be a solid pick. So, you know, it, it has a chance has a chance to be a, a, a solid pick for sure. Uh, you know, another one of the other questions I have with Ajabo is exactly the injury he's coming back from. Is he going to lose some of the explosiveness and the get off that is his calling card as a player? I worry really, about that with J.K. Yeah. Dobbins for this season, but that's yeah. not really related to the draft. Yeah, but both but both players, it's, it's the, the the argument would be similar in terms of that explosiveness. Is is any of that going to be lost after the Achilles is is gone? So anyway. So some of that Ojabo stuff will be uh, mitigated if he comes back this season. If we get oh, yeah. something from him in October or November. Yeah. And if he gets two sacks in the conference championship game any of the next couple of years, then I think we're going to be quite pleased with that pick, you know, even if he does leave in free agency. Absolutely. And 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 the Ravens, I always say this every year with regard to the pick I don't agree with, um, is the Ravens have earned my trust. Yeah. They, they've drafted so well for all these years. You know, one of the things, just to kind of finish up this this thing, you know, you sometimes hear the the notion of acquiring extra mid and late round picks the way the Ravens have with the compensatory formula or with trading back and getting additional picks and, and just getting equivalent JJ value, which is more on any other flatter valuation chart. So that you know they're winning those trades in 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 the perspective of what they think the picks are really work worth when they trade down. The the, the act of doing that 
um, uh, a lot of people assimilate to uh, lottery tickets. That yeah. All they're doing is just picking up more lottery tickets. Yeah. As soon as you say that, you've lost me in the argument. I just, I, I really can't stand people say that because that basically says everybody who's drafting is of equivalent talent. Well, we already, we, we look at the you know Ravens history. That's complete bullshit. Right, I, right. I've, I've had discussion with somebody online. He's a PFF guy who said basically, look, they're all lottery tickets. You can go back to the beginning. And I said, look, the Ravens have consistently done this. They've consistently outdrafted people. And they said, well, it's different people who've done the drafting. No, it hasn't. It's it really actually hasn't been, been Ozzie and DaCosta the entire time. A, you sprinkle a little of Phil Savage in there in the early yeah. years. And sure, they had other guys like Joe Douglas who were good scouts and whatnot. But basically, it's the same guys making right. the top-level decisions the whole way through. Right. Would, would it be fair to equate them to, um, you know, if you if you could buy lottery tickets where, like, one ticket – had a greater than even chance, you know. So a lot, not all lottery tickets are created equal. I've like got an analogy for you. Ten X. Go ahead. I've got an analogy for you. So uh, this there's a great poker player out there, Harrington, who's written a number of books about about poker. And I try, I try to remember his first name, but I can't I can't do it right now. This is this is bad. Uh, he's a Massachusetts guy though, and and what he says about it is is very salient. He says, you know, we've all got a ten thousand dollar entry into the main event of the World Series of Poker. It's just. Mine is worth the equivalent of about four tickets, and a lot of these other people is worth about the equivalent of about a quarter ticket. <laughs> and and it's it it's probably not that extreme in yeah. the NFL draft, but that's that's a similar thing. And I think that's the, the the idea you're getting at is that you know some tickets just have a better chance to to succeed. And, and well, I'm talking about first round versus fourth round and fifth round. Like, okay. the, not all lottery tickets are equal because in this case, the pick values, like there are different pick values here. That That's true. But I'm, I'm even saying like, like you have all 32 teams could make pick number 100. Oh, and, yeah. and, and the 30, the, the 32 teams in the NFL, based on the composition of their scouting and whatnot, are, are going to do a different quality of job in making that 100th pick. I would rather have Ozzy slash DaCosta's pick 100 in any draft than say for example <laughs> the texans pick 100 in yeah. any draft that's fair enough that is that that's the point that you're making that's right? the point i'm making is that yeah. is that they're, they're going to do a better job with those they have higher value lottery tickets or whatever we want to we want to call we've I we've know. lost this or beaten this analogy to death i think as far <laughs> as we can well Jim, i know that you want to wrap up um and i wanted to ask you really quick is there anything about risk that you would like to say about the punter pick in the fourth round from this draft um there are definitely risks associated with uh with jordan stout it's um those are opportunity cost risks uh some because they had a chance to take a receiver that they that they liked i think was austin that went to the cowboys so they had a chance the steelers right steelers it's worse because it's in division so it's (laughs) it's like a head-on-head pick uh good chance he ends up being a good player for them i I think you know they they had some floor gain out of this was that they're going to get a punter who will cut their cap by a couple million right off the bat and and that has some obviously some positives that they get out of it here's the risk is that if he cannot deliver 97 percent of the hall of fame holding ability of sam cook then the Ravens could lose at, at, in their kicking game, and that would be really sad. I don't think he'll. I don't think he'll disappoint as a punter. I think he's going to be, um, you know, eighty percent plus of what they want, and he's, you know, he's uh, uh, enough better than the average punter in the league that that would be pretty impressive, even yeah. even towards the bottom end. But uh, but I do think there's a there's a risk that uh, that as a holder he doesn't end up being the guy they need. Now, I I do kind of trust not only that. Um, Cook will probably help him to 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 figure it out, but also that the the kicking coach uh, Brown is going to do a really good job of of teaching him what Sam Cook knew, yeah, uh, and that Tucker himself can help teach him uh, what he knew. So I, I, I'm hoping that uh, you know between Randy Brown and, and and Tucker they'll be able to work it out. I often thought that when a wide receiver came to say the Patriots or Indianapolis or the Saints that the wide receiver would go where Mr. Brady or Mr. Manning or Mr. Breeze told them to go yeah. at the time he tells them to go to it, or he will not be around for long. And I kind of think that Justin Tucker's holder is perhaps in a similar situation. Yeah, he, he might be. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what else they could, they could do about it. I mean, maybe they have another guy, maybe it's Huntley, the backup quarterback could be, it could be the holder if it's, if it's not um, stout, but, uh, but there aren't really a lot of other options. I mean, generally speaking, your punter has to be your holder. Supposedly, at his pro day, Stout did nothing but hold. He didn't punt at all. 
Well, you know, he, he didn't hold at all, or not that I'm aware of anyway, during his college career, he, he was, the, he was the kicker himself. So that obviously isn't, was an unanswered question coming into this draft and it's intelligent uh, of him to address it pre-draft. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. All right, Jim, absolute pleasure to talk football with you. Always love to get together and, and have these conversations. Let's make sure we have more of this off season. I'm, I'm sure we've got lots of topics we can, uh, we can cut on, including the one we kind of short circuited earlier in this, I think would be, would be fun to talk about. Uh, tell folks Thank where they can talk can. football with you. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I've been distracted by the Terrapins uh, search for a new basketball coach and their recruiting tribulations this year. Perhaps have been sublimating from the disappointing end from the last Ravens season, but I'm starting to be interested in football again. So you can find me on Twitter. That's app zip underscore Jim, or just look among the people who are liking Ken's tweets uh, and you'll find me there. Uh, that's nice to say. Thank you. Other folks out there, if you uh, want to be on a film study short this offseason, I'm looking for people to do it, if, particularly if you have even a multiple a series of shows you'd like to do. I'm I'm into that. So uh, give me a DM on Twitter. They're always open. Love to hear from you. I'll get back to you very quickly. And uh, we'll be talking about how to get you uh, recorded and, uh, and on a show. But we really enjoy talking football with a multitude of people. And uh, this has proven to be a, a very useful uh, way to find new people, find new discussions that are interesting, and just enjoy talking football. So, Jim, thanks again for, for coming on. Ken, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.